Well, good morning, church. We are going to be in First Thessalonians 4 today, and we are coming really to what lies at the very heart of this letter of First Thessalonians. So if you have uh, not been with us over the last month or so as we've been walking through this, you have come on a good day, and I pray you'll be encouraged today because that is the very center of what we're looking at today. As Grant just said, it is not so much about eschatology as it is about encouragement. And we want to be encouraged by the truths that are going to be laid out in the Word of God for us today. So I've entitled today's message, Be Informed and Be Encouraged. Those are two commands that are given to us. Paul begins this passage by saying, I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. So it implies what? He wants us to be informed of what he's speaking about. And as a result of these things, he wants us to be a people who are greatly encouraged. So I don't even know, I don't know today if you come in needing a word of encouragement, but I pray that we would all receive one because that is the focus of our text today. We're talking about the second coming, that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is coming back. There is one great date left upon the calendar of Almighty God, and it is the day in which Jesus Christ will return for his people. The Bible talks about this all over the place, Old and New Testament. Even before his first coming, the Bible was already speaking about his second coming. Of the 27 books in our New Testament, 23 of them speak explicitly about the fact that Christ is coming back. And this book of 1 Thessalonians has spoken about it as an exclamation point at the end of every single chapter. Pastor Mark Howe said, for every biblical reference to Jesus' first coming, there are eight that point to his return. It was never intended to be a reason for speculation, but always to be a reason for anticipation and motivation. This ought to encourage us and it ought to inspire us to live our lives for the Lord. Here's the main theme of what we're going to talk about this morning in our time in God's Word. That being rightly informed about Christ's second coming will give us as believers, as followers of Jesus, great encouragement in the midst of our present sufferings. So again, I don't know for many of you what kinds of sufferings that you're enduring right now. Perhaps there are health struggles. Perhaps there are sin struggles. Perhaps there are relational struggles. Perhaps there are money struggles. There's all kinds of struggles in this life. Jesus himself said to his followers in this life, you will have trouble. And, and we see that continually in a sin-saturated and broken world. But we can be encouraged because we recognize that even in the midst of our suffering, we have have a tremendous hope and that is the theme of our text today and so let's jump right in in these first few verses paul speaks three times about this group he calls those who are asleep those who are asleep and he wants us to see here what is what i would call the eventuality for the sleeping What's going to happen with this group of people that three times here Paul references as those who are 
asleep. Well, first of all, we need to know who are these folks. Are these just guys who are taking a good Sunday afternoon nap, which I recommend to all of you, by the way. The best way to spend your Sunday afternoon on my way to my grandmother's house this afternoon, I'm going to get a really good hour long or more nap during that drive as my wife chauffeurs me. That's our preference in traveling. But that is not what he's talking about here. Who are those who are asleep well explicitly we see those who are asleep here are called the sleeping these are the dead in christ if you look at verse 13 and then you look at verse 16 you see that connection that he's making and this is not just strange language that the apostle paul used this is language that jesus also used in relation to his friend lazarus he said lazarus is asleep the disciples didn't get it and said well if he's just sleeping he'll wake up and then jesus said no you dummies he's dead I know I added the word dummies in there, but that's what I think Jesus was thinking about his disciples a lot of the time because we're not real bright sometimes. But he's talking about those who are dead, who have trusted in Christ and then subsequently died. And so as Paul is addressing the church at Thessalonica, he is addressing a group of people who are experiencing great persecution, and some of these have died, perhaps even from the persecution, perhaps even died because of the sufferings related to their faith in Christ. And this seems to have thrown the church at Thessalonica off a little bit. They weren't sure exactly what to do because Paul had related to them that Jesus was coming again for his people. This is the great hope of the Christian life. Our great hope is not for an economic uptick. Our great hope is not for a better man in a certain office. Our great hope is the coming of Jesus Christ. And rightly, the church at Thessalonica was looking forward in anticipation to the imminent return of Christ. That meant he could come at any time. So they were astounded and they were dismayed and they were thrown off track when some of their fellow church members started to pass away. When some of them died and they didn't know what happens to those who die as Christians. And Paul wanted them to know. He did not want them to be uninformed. He wanted them to be informed that they might be encouraged. And so what do we understand about those who have died as Christians? First of all, I want to set the stage here. We've we've experienced a lot of deaths in our congregation over this last year. A lot of folks that were just pillars of this congregation have gone on to be with the Lord. But what is our attitude toward that? How do we respond? Paul says, I don't want you, church, to grieve as those who have no hope. I want you to grieve. He's not telling them not to grieve, but he's saying, I'm wanting you to grieve in hope, which the world doesn't get that. And the Greek world in which the Thessalonians were, were living, they didn't get that either. They didn't see any hope in death. Death was just an ending point. There was nothing beyond death in the Greek mindset. But here he's saying there is something beyond death, and that's what should give you great hope. So how, how then do we respond when loved ones who are in Christ pass away? John Chrysostom, one of the early 
church fathers said this. He said, weep at the death of a dear one as if you were bidding farewell to one setting out on a journey. I think that's so helpful. Just the mindset that that brings that there is one setting out on a great journey and while we will not see them again in this life, we are looking forward to a glorious reunion to come. That's what's going to be displayed in our text today. So what happens to the dead in Christ? What happens to believers who die? Well, first of all, we recognize very clearly from the scriptures that the dead in Christ are residing with him now. This terminology of the dead in Christ being asleep has led some to the wrong conclusion of a a faulty and false doctrine known as soul sleep. This is not what the Bible teaches. The idea of soul sleep is that when a believer dies, that they simply sleep in the grave until Jesus comes back for his people. So all those who have died are just kind of hanging out in the grave, unconscious and unaware of their surroundings until the time when Jesus will come to raise the dead. That is not what the Bible teaches. And in fact, that is an abominable doctrine that is obviously very hopeless. There's no hope in that just to go into some kind of oblivion until one day Jesus wakes you up to perhaps spend a few thousand years just asleep in the grave. No, we understand from the scriptures that is not what happens to the dead in Christ. Second Corinthians chapter five, Paul writes, we are always of good courage. As believers, we are always of good courage for we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Notice the distinction here. Home in the body away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. And he says it again. Yes, we are of good courage. We are encouraged as the people of God. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, if soul sleep is what the Bible is teaching, then what Paul just wrote is a false doctrine. If we just go and lay in the grave until Jesus comes back for his people, unconscious and unaware until that great day, then how could Paul say we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord? We understand what Paul is saying is this. Those who die in Christ with their faith in Jesus Christ, their souls leave their bodies and they go into the presence of the Lord immediately. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And this should bring us great hope as we consider those who have gone before us. But not only are the dead in Christ residing with him now in the present moment, but the dead in Christ will reappear with him later. There is more for them to do. They are coming back with him, and it's right here in our text this morning. He says, we do not want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him. Notice those words. God will bring with him, with Christ, those who have fallen asleep. 
And so when Jesus comes, he will not be alone, but with him will be the multitudes that have gone on before us. So Colossians 3 encourages us then, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then notice this great promise. When Christ, who is your life, appears, when he comes again, then you also will appear with him in glory. What great hope this is. That Jesus will come He will split wide the heavens. He will come, as we'll see in just a moment, with a victory cry. But he will not be alone. An army will be with him, those who've been redeemed by his blood. So we start talking about the second coming. And everybody wants to know, so how's it going to go down? We had a series of books back in the 90s, the Left Behind series. By the way, how many of you have read one or more of the Left Behind series? Here, here is, here's one thing that I've become convinced of. So much of our theology of the second coming has been crafted by Tim LaHaye and the Left Behind series and not really by the Word of God. Now, hear me rightly. There are some good things and some helpful things in those books. But I think there are some things that that Tim LaHaye got wrong. And Tim LaHaye would say to me, hey, pastor, I think there's some things that you're getting wrong. I'm not going to lay before you this morning uh, speculations. I just want to look at what the Word of God has to say. So in the Left Behind series, there was this idea that that there would be what's called the pre-tribulational rapture, which means that's a big fancy term to say that Jesus was going to come again before this great period called the tribulation. But when Jesus came before the tribulation, he was going to come kind of secretly, kind of covertly, and, and, and that people would be raptured, they would be caught up to heaven, and, and that would just happen in the, in the twinkling of an eye, and the world would be like, whoa, what just happened? There's millions of people missing, and we don't know what happened to them. It was a, a secret coming, and then there would be this great tribulation, and at the end of the tribulation, then Jesus would come back visibly and bodily. Now, it makes for good books, but I'm not sure how well it lines up with the book above all books. Because what I'm seeing here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is not about secrecy. This is, this is not a covert operation in which Jesus is coming back. No, it is very visible. It is very well made known to the world. And if you're wondering about how it's all going to go down, I'm going to tell you this morning. At least I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. Let's talk about the events in their sequence. What's going to happen when Jesus comes back? I'm convinced from my study of the Word of God that, again, there's one great date awaiting us on the calendar of God, the return of Jesus Christ. And in that great day, how is it going to go down? Well, first of all, we see 
right there in verses 16 and 17. And I know there's lots of debate about these verses. Let's just look at the, what the Word of God has to say. Let's stray away from speculation and just look at what has God given us. What do we know? Well, first of all, we see that Christ, the same Christ who ascended into heaven after his resurrection, that same Christ, Jesus, will return in victory. Now, if you just read this in its context and, and, and don't go on the left behind route, if you just read this in its context, you see this is a visible return. This is a victorious return. This is Jesus making the world aware that he is king. Notice what it says. It says there in verse 16, for the Lord himself. That means the same Jesus that ascended into heaven, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now just take those words at face value. Does that sound like a covert operation to you? Does that sound like a secret coming to you? I'm not trying to change your eschatology this morning. I'm just asking you, let's look at the word of God at face value and see, no, this is Jesus coming with a victory cry. This is Jesus coming with the same kind of cry of command as he said to Lazarus in John chapter 11. He said, Lazarus, come out of that grave. It's that same kind of cry of command that's taking place. The same Jesus who in Acts chapter 1 it says, And while the disciples were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and they said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, this same one who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let me ask you this again. Did Jesus just secretly disappear when he ascended into heaven? No, they saw him go, did they not? They were so astounded by it, they're standing there slack jaw looking into the heavens and wondering what just happened. And he's saying, this same Jesus will come back in the same way you saw him go. The one difference will be the whole world will see it. Everyone will know that Jesus is king. How will he come? He will come with the cry of command. He will come with the voice of an archangel. He'll come with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now scholars have debated, are these three separate things? Are these all one? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to understand them for the sake of, of argument today as being all one thing. That he's describing one thing that's going to happen. And it's going to sound like a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, a trumpet sound. This is a powerful statement that's being made. So I want us to consider, I want to take a little bit of a detour this morning, and I want us to consider how trumpets are used in the Scriptures. I spent some time this week kind of working through, there's over a hundred references to trumpets throughout the Bible, so it took me a little bit of time this week to begin to, to work through those and to, and to see how, why, why would God use a trumpet like this? We kind of take it for granted we sing about it. We kind of take it for granted. The trump will resound and the Lord will descend. We, we, we sing about it. But why the trumpet? Let's kind of look at some verses 
throughout our Bible that relate to the trumpet. The first reference to a trumpet is found in Exodus chapter 19. This is where Moses is going up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, to stand in the very presence of God. And God wants to invite his people to come join him on the mountain, but they are too afraid. But in Exodus 19, verse 13, it says, When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they, the people of God, shall come up the mountain. So take that in. That's the first time we see a trumpet in Scripture is when God is inviting his people to come up on the mountain with him. Now, they are too afraid to do that, but they weren't afraid enough to stay away from the idolatry that leads them to judgment. Isaiah chapter 18 We see another reference to trumpets. This is, I'm just picking some of the more than a hundred that are there. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a trumpet is blown here. Now, Isaiah writes 700 years before the first coming of Christ, but I think there's at least a glimpse here of what's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. What we're seeing here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when the trumpet is sounded, this is not going to be a secret coming. This is going to be a worldwide phenomenon. Everyone is going to be aware at the same time of this moment when the king returns. Joel chapter 2, blow a trumpet In Zion, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Now, we're going to talk about the day of the Lord next week as we get into 1 Thessalonians 5. But for now, recognize the day of the Lord has been talked about all throughout Scripture and the day of the Lord here being associated with this blowing of the trumpet. And finally, the last mention of a trumpet in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 9 says, The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord himself will sound the trumpet. And so what we're seeing the trumpet being used for, we see the trumpet being used for throughout the Old Testament is, uh, first of all, the trumpet was used to gather God's people together. We see this several times in the book of Numbers, the trumpet being used to call God's people together, 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 together for worship, primarily. We see trumpets being used to call out God's army, the trumpet being sounded to gather troops together for war. We see trumpets being used to announce that a new king has come when Solomon takes up his throne, that a trumpet is sounded announcing Solomon is king. Long live the king. Trumpets used over and over and over again. And I believe every one of those pictures is summed up in First Thessalonians chapter 4. As the trumpet is sounded, they are saying the king is here and there will be no king after him. The king above all kings, he is here. And as the trumpet was sounded, the people of God are being gathered together. This great ingathering of the people of God is taking place and we are being gathered unto him. I also want you to see, as we'll see before we finish this morning, that when the trumpet of God is sounded, there will be with it a war cry for those who are rejecting this king there will be a declaration of war that will end in their swift judgment but it's not just old testament we see trumpets in the new testament a couple dozen times 
Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talking about the end times that we're seeing in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from one end of heaven to the other. See the common themes, the angels and the trumpets being brought together here again in Jesus' words of what's going to happen at the end. The gathering of God's people, these who are called the elect from one end of heaven to the other being brought together under one kingship. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, writing about that last day, Paul writes, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and we shall be changed. Church, this is where our hope lies. At the very end of the book, Revelation chapter 8, we actually see seven trumpets. Then I saw the seven angels who were standing before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And as you read over the next three chapters in the book of Revelation, what is the purpose of these trumpets? They are the demonstration of the judgment of God come upon the world. So the trumpet announces good news to those who are living under the kingship of King Jesus. But it announces the worst of news to those who are rejecting his kingdom. So Christ will descend. Just as he ascended to heaven, he will descend in victory. And then the dead in Christ will be raised. And notice it says the dead in Christ will rise first. This is God's ordering. Why God will choose to do it this way, we don't know, but he's already told us in advance. This is how it's going to go down. That Jesus will descend and the dead in Christ will rise first. Their bodies will rise to meet their souls that are coming with the Lord in his victorious return. Pastor James Grant reminds us that the living and the dead have the same hope. The living and the dead have the same hope. It's the hope of the resurrection. That is where our hope lies. That death has been defeated. The greatest enemy of all mankind has been done away with. And even if we should taste death, we know it will simply be like being asleep. Why like being asleep? Because it's temporary. It's for a limited time only. Death is not the end. Death is a doorway to the beginning of all of eternity. And we see it described here So we have this hope, the hope of the resurrection. The dead in Christ will be raised. And then thirdly, the family of God will be reunited for all of eternity. We are right in the midst of this summer season of family reunions. Some of our families even had them this, this weekend. My family is getting ready to get together this next week family reunion whatever you think of that understand the greatest of all family reunions is right here in first thessalonians chapter four because the greatest of all families is right here in first thessalonians chapter four that this goes beyond what your last name is or what your historical heritage is this goes beyond all that we see the family above all families the family of god the redeemed people of god rescued by the blood of christ brought in to kingdom through 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 the faith that they have in jesus and his finished work at the cross we see these reunited the dead in christ reunited with their bodies and the living those who are living at the time of his return they are reunited both with jesus 
and with their loved ones who've gone on ahead of them. What a glorious truth. Hebrews 9 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that was what his first coming was about. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, that's already been done with, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So here's the biggest question of the day. Are you eagerly waiting for him? Are you longing for his return? There is no greater question that I could ask you today than that. This is the heart check that all of us need because we get so easily complacent and satisfied and contented by the things of this life. And yet the scriptures are calling us to a longing that we would not be satisfied and content with the things of this world, but that there would constantly be in our souls a dissatisfaction, a longing for something greater. This is what the gospel does. It creates in us a longing for more of Him that can only be satisfied when we stand before Him. When we see Him face to face, when our faith becomes sight, when our King calls us home. And above all things, church, this is what brings us encouragement in our greatest trials. So let's talk about then the encouragement of the saints. We've seen what happens to these called uh, the, the sleeping. We've seen this sequence of events, at least what God wants us to know. By the way, his, his goal was not to satisfy our curiosity and answer all of our questions. So if you've still got questions about the end times, you're in good company. I've still got questions about the end times, how some things are going to go down. But the bottom line is this. And we'll see this again next week. The bottom line is this, church. Let's be encouraged. Because our King is coming. Verse 18. Therefore, bottom line, this is the brass tacks of it all. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It is so utterly sad and even disgusting that eschatology, the study of the end times, has become so divisive. What was meant to be our greatest encouragement has often often been the source of the greatest difficulties and divisions in the church. My brothers and sisters, it should not be that way. This ought to be a point of unity for us. Jesus is coming again. What does this mean for us? Why should we be encouraged by the coming of Christ? Well, first of all, Because Christ is coming, bringing consolation to the weary. So if you're weary in your current trial, the encouragement for you today is Christ is coming. He's coming and bringing with you, with himself, consolation. He is our consolation. He is our peace. He is the one who in Matthew 11 said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, who are just worn out with this world. Come to me and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will, here's the second time, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I believe those words are fulfilled when Jesus comes again. And so we can rest secure. Christ is coming. Bringing consolation to the weary. But not only that, a warning. Christ is coming. Bringing condemnation upon the wicked. Jesus is coming soon. For those who are trusting in Christ, that ought to be our greatest encouragement. For those who are not trusting in Christ, who are rejecting this great gospel, who are continuing in self-righteous rebellion against this great king above all kings, this ought to sound the trumpet warning to us to say, Christ is coming, so repent of your sins and trust in Him. Jesus is coming soon. And when He comes, He's not going to be coming to die on a cross. He's going to be coming to rule as King. And you will either submit yourself to Him now, or you will bow the knee to Him and through gritted teeth proclaim His Lordship. And then be cast from His presence because you refused His grace. Matthew 24 again, Jesus said, Then on that day when He comes again will appear in heaven the Son of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. When Jesus comes, there will be great rejoicing and there will be great mourning. There will be that same blend that took place on the day that the second temple was completed. And it says that the the older generation was mourning because they remembered the glory of the first temple and saw the second temple isn't nearly as good as what we used to have. But there will be great rejoicing. There was great rejoicing on that day because the younger generation looked and said, we've never had a temple before and we're really excited about this. And and the the blend of mourning and rejoicing was so great that it it could be heard far away. And when the fulfillment of the temple, Jesus Christ, comes to the world, that same blend will be there. There will be great rejoicing from His people. We will join in that victory cry. But there will be great mourning, grief, and crying out from those who've rejected this great King and His offer of grace. Christ is coming, bringing consolation to the weary he's coming bringing condemnation to the wicked he is coming bringing confidence to those who are hardly hanging on to hope i just want to say to you church if this is where you find yourself today you are in excellent company if you're at a place in your life right now where you are just hardly hanging on to hope, your marriage is hanging by a thread, your health is hanging by a thread, your relationship with your kids is hanging by a thread, it seems like everything is just about to unravel and fall apart, and all you can do is cry out to the Lord and ask Him for His help. Remember, He is an ever-present help in troubled times. We are living in troubled times, but these troubled times are passing away. This is not all there is. 
That's where the encouragement comes. This is not all there is. That diagnosis that you have received is not the end of your story if you're in Christ. That job that you lost is not the end of your story if you're in Christ. That child of yours who's living in rebellion against God and your heart is so grieved by that, that is not the end of your story if you are in Christ. Whatever is burdening your heart today, hear the word of the Lord. That is not the end of your story if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. The end of your story is right here. And while you may be living in a perpetual state of defeat, the victory is yours because the king said so. I'll leave us with Titus chapter 2. I love these words. For the grace of God has appeared. It's already here. Bringing salvation for all people. Not that all can, not that all will be saved, but that all can be saved. Salvation is open through what Christ has done for us, training us then to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to turn from our sin and to live self-right, upright, self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, trusting in Christ. That's the picture there. Turning from our sin, trusting in Christ. And then what are we doing? And waiting for our blessed hope. Which is a better president to be elected in three years, right? Which is a vaccine that will last longer than seven months, right? Which is the economy to get back on track, right? No. Those are all vain hopes. Every one of them and more. We have so many vain hopes in this world. Our blessed hope is the promise of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is where our hope lies. And so if you're in need of hope, if you're in need of encouragement this morning, I have three simple words for you. Christ is coming. He is coming, so be encouraged. If you're not trusting in Christ today, hear these words, Christ is coming, be warned. Trust in Jesus today, because perhaps this afternoon will be the day when the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and we will rise to meet them in the air. And perhaps there will be those who are left behind. But they will be left behind in the judgment of God. No more opportunity to trust in King Jesus. Be encouraged. Be warned. And be hopeful. Regardless of your circumstances, Jesus is King. Better things are yet to come. Actually, every Christian has every good reason to be a great optimist. Because we know where our story ends. How do we know? Because God's already told us. So all the chapters leading up to the conclusion are simply a means of him preparing us for what we're going to spend eternity doing together.
in that great reunion. Father, thank you for this picture today. Lord, I know that there are some in this room who are deeply discouraged right now, even barely hanging on to hope. I pray that they would hear those three simple words, that Christ is coming. Father, even before we can hear the words, Christ is coming, some first need to hear the words that Christ has come. He came into the world, not born as a prince in a palace, but born as a baby in a manger, laid in a feeding trough, living most of his life in obscurity, A brief three-year ministry where he laid out the principles of the kingdom and then the king took up not a throne, but a cross. Not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And the one who should have been exalted by every voice, instead they hurled insults at him. And in his dying breath, he prayed for the forgiveness of those who put him on the cross. Father, I pray that as we've considered our coming king, that we would be reminded today that he came to deal with our sin, to deal with our rebellion against you, God. And that He is our only hope, but He is all the hope that we need. And we pray this morning that as we share this final song, that we would consider what Your Word has said to us today, that those who are in Christ would be encouraged, that we would be hopeful, that we would be longing for our coming King and looking forward to His return. But Father, I also pray for those who have not yet bowed the knee to King Jesus who have not yet repented of their sins and turned to Christ in faith. God, I pray that you would help them to see this great truth, that the King has come, that He has dealt with their sin, and the King is coming, and He is bringing His kingdom. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. May we bow the knee today. And be greatly encouraged by our King and His coming soon. In Jesus' name.